Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Now let's hear the Word of God as it is written in Romans 12, verses 4 to 8. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Apostle Paul has spent the first two-thirds of his letter to the Roman church pointing out the glory of God, not the glory of man. He's pointed out the glory of God by pointing out the ingratitude of Gentile man and the degradation to which Gentile man, who is ungrateful, is given over by God to sin. Remember Romans 1. The glory of God is highlit by Romans 2, God pointing out that Jewish man is even worse than Gentile man, because whereas Gentile man doesn't know sodomy is wrong, Jewish man knows adultery is wrong and tells people not to commit it, but then they turn around and commit it themselves. And so Romans 2 gives us as the people of God our comeuppance because to our sin is added the sin of hypocrisy. Okay? And then he goes on and and he opens and opens and opens up the glory of God. What is the best way to think about God's election, his predestination, his choice? Well, think of it as being God making it clear to us that we did not choose him, but he chose us. You know, I'm quoting Jesus in saying that. And so even in our salvation, or maybe especially in our salvation, we have to glorify God. We have to look at ourselves and say, I can't believe it. That's how all of us should look at our redemption, at our salvation. We should just say, I can't believe it. Honestly, how did that happen? Well, that's to the glory of God. Then we need to look at our life after God regenerates us, gives us new birth, we're born again. And we have to say, well, but I'm still a sinner. And God says, yes, but you must be holy as I am holy. And we say, well, how does that happen? And then we see how the Apostle Paul describes his struggle as a Christian to be holy. And that he ends up by saying, who will rescue me from this body of death? 
At that point, he says what? Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to the sin that's, that is besetting on us as Christians, it brings us so down. And that gives God's glory because we say, thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't just say that we're saved by grace. We say we're sanctified by grace. We say that we thank God not just for saving us, but for this constant difficult work of sanctification. And this is the way that the book of Romans, or I should say the letter to the Romans goes. The first two thirds of it is, shall we say, a title of one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, God glorified in man's dependence. God glorified in man's dependence. Then, the last third of the book, the Apostle Paul turns to us and says, okay, you know you have to be holy and you know God does the work. Now, here are the various ways that you are to be holy. And we're right at the beginning of it, and we find that the first way that God commands us to be holy through the pen of the Apostle Paul is that we are to actually like each other. That we are to actually be willing to be humble and depend on each other. God is not sufficient, or God is not... um, Well, how do I say this? That's not right. God is not going to settle for us saying that we love him when we don't love our brother. I mean, you've read 1 John, right? He says, if we say we love him and hate our brother, we're liar. God is not going to be contented with us saying we submit to his authority and then rebel against our elders and our civil magistrates. He's going to call us a liar because how can we submit to him and then rebel against those he's put over us? God is not going to be content with saying that we are committed to the church when we reject the different parts and members of the church, that we love the bride of Christ, that we cling to our mother, Jerusalem, when we don't cling to any particular person in the church. And you say, well, my wife's a member and I cling to her. (laughs) And I say, grow up. You know, come on, we're not talking about your wife and you don't really cling to her. You know, we all have trouble allowing anybody else to give to us. So yesterday I was over at Charlie and Susie's. I'm in love. Why am I in love? I'm in love to watch Charlie and Susie with each other. Such tenderness. And that would be Susie. But such humility. Tenderness needs room to operate. Such humility, and that would be Charlie. watching my granddaughter Mary Louise going back and forth before I came up here and 
And I'm thinking about Mary Louise and her life and thinking about the fact that her entire life is a life of having others do for her what she should do for herself. Have you ever thought about that being a gift to this church? Have you ever thought about that? Doesn't feel like a gift, does it? It feels like a burden, right? What do you think it takes from Mary Louise to have everybody do for her what she should do for herself? Do you think that's a gift she gives us willingly? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the importance of parents of handicapped children teaching those children to be content giving their gift to their family and not to resent it? Have you ever thought about this? Well, for heaven's sakes, can we please think about Bob Kapowitz? What has Bob given to us for decades? The only thing Bob has had to give to us especially now that he can't take us to Europe for opera house performances anymore. <laughs> you poor guys, you missed out. <laughs> and now that he can't even enjoy food, that was the crowning blow. <laughs> he still knows good food, he just can't give, you know, he can't enjoy it with you. What Bob has been giving to us as a church for many years is our our work of service. He is not a burden. He is a gift. Do you understand this? Now let me ask you a question, those of you that know and love Bob. Does Bob give that gift cheerfully or is he a sourpuss about it? Come on, answer me. He gives it cheerfully. I am amazed at how cheerful Bob is to give me his needs. I never pity the men who serve Bob and love him. I pity the men who serve him and don't love him. What God wants from us is he wants us to humble ourselves and let others serve us. And in order for that to happen, we have to recognize that we don't have the different gifts that we need. And often, you ready for this, we don't even have the gift we think we have. Somebody corrected me after the first sermon and said, you forgot to say this, and so now I'm saying it. You know one of the things that drives elders crazy in churches <laughs> is people who tell you what their gift is. It's like, please, please, let the church. And so people will ask me, how do you know what your gift is? And you know, have any of you, do any of you remember my answer? I always say, 
the church is omniscient in knowing your gift. You know? The church will tell you, I'll never forget. I had this hankering in me to be a pastor. I had grown up my whole life thinking about being a pastor and what needed to be done and shouldn't be done and all this stuff, you know. But I had never said it to anybody. And in fact, Mary Lee and I had been dating for years. Then we got married and then she found out she was going to be a pastor's wife. That's how much I had held it close to my chest, you know. She's like, what are you going to do? (laughs) You know, well, didn't you know that, you know? So anyhow, we get married and we begin immediately to lead the youth group at our church. Why they let us, I'll never know. We were pieces of work. But that was something we volunteered for, you know. And generally, volunteers will be allowed to do what they want to do if there is no youth group and you're offering to start one. So anyhow, we get done there. We're there three years, and then we move out to Boulder, where I have a position on the pastoral staff out in Boulder at First Pres there. And so we spend the year with them allowing me to teach an adult Sunday school class and to start a small group and to teach the lay counselors of the church and and to be in the uh, staff meetings and that's pretty much it I guess so it comes to the end of the year and I'm going off to seminary and they send a delegate from the session to me and, and let me tell you, you know me, I had, uh, <laughs> I had made some pretty big mistakes since while I was there, okay? I had not commended myself as being the sort of impeccable hairspray man that you generally want in the ministry. You know, I was then what I am now, if you get the idea. And so at the end of the year, they send an elder to me and they say, we believe in your pastoral ministry and your giftedness and we want to help support you financially through seminary the church is omniscient no man should promote himself into the position of pastor and elder and deacon you know that man the head, of, the head of staff at First Pres was a guy named Bob Erder, a very wise man. I remember one staff meeting at that church that he said, you know, in every church there's a man who is a frustrated pastor and he will cause you a large part of your trouble. Well, what is a frustrated pastor? Well, it's a man that's not called to be a pastor but thinks he's better than the pastor at doing what the pastor should do. And he just torments you. His judgments are better than yours. His teaching is better than yours. His marriage is better than yours. His children are better than yours. Listen, an awful lot of our sanctification is accomplished by us being humble enough to listen to the church and to give to the church what God has given us to give to the church and to receive from the church what God has given to other people for our building up. And which is harder, to give to the church what he has given to us to give to the church or to receive from the church what he has given the church to give to us? Which is harder? Is it harder to give or is it harder to receive? 
It's more blessed to give than to receive, but it's more holy to receive than to give, right? (laughs) Because it just goes against our nature. We all want to be independent. We all want to give to others and never receive from others. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Remember Pastor Baker's sermon yesterday at the funeral. He said, we are members of one another. We're not just members of the body, we're members of one another. Now what's the significance of that? The significance of it is, it's one thing for us to say, you know, I am a member of the body. Dear, dear friend, you are a member of the body. But let's say that dear friend is the appendix. Do we say to him, dear friend, I am the biceps. And I'm a member of the appendix. Now, it's gross I mean we cut them off the appendix so I want you to think of the part of the body that does the part you want to you want to forget has to be done and I don't want you to just think of being attached here while it's attached there I want you to think that you and that part are members of one another You are a member of Bob Kapowitz, and he, unfortunately, has to put up with being a member of you. (laughs) Oh, my. (sighs) Since we have gifts that differ... And we'll all agree to that, right? We'll all cop to that. We have gifts that differ, right? In the generality, it's not obnoxious, you know? Yeah, we have gifts that differ. Oh, that's like cool, dude. You know, like diversity and inclusivity, pluralism and all these words that the university licks like a lollipop. But then the Apostle Paul stops right there, and what does he say? He says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Oh, 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 this isn't about me. This is about God, huh? Okay, remember that God gave these gifts to us. It's God with whom you have to do when we talk about gifts, okay? You see how the Apostle Paul does that? He's just like always slapping us. I mean, they're nice slaps. Since we have gifts that differ, according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. Now, what is prophecy? Well, um, it's a debate. There are many people still today that say that prophecy is foretelling. It's knowing the future from a revelation of God and telling the future to the church. We know that in the New Testament, there are many uses of that word in that connection. We know that God's servants in the Old Testament were his prophets. We know that integral to their work was foretelling what was going to happen. 
But we also know that there are precious few prophets who foretell today. Now, I have spent a good bit of time in charismatic worship in churches, okay? I've been there, I've done that. And the thing that absolutely blows me away about people who claim that the gift of prophecy is still alive is how absolutely identical all prophecies are in charismatic churches. I mean, you go to the Old Testament and there's an incredible diversity, an embarrassing superfluity of prophecies. Uh, And often it doesn't just come with words, it comes with things like nakedness, Ezekiel. Oh, you didn't know about that. Whereas in charismatic churches, I always feel like I'm being smothered in the bosom of my first grade teacher. (laughs) You know, it's like she gathers me to herself and I can't breathe. It's suffocating all the goodness that's going to just come down on me if I just let it come. Come on, guys, laugh. I mean, you've heard them, right? You've heard them, you know? And it's always, to me, I think, I read the Old Testament. I don't know, I don't think even David's mighty men are as masculine as the prophets are. But today, the thing that's supposed to be the parallel is like completely estrogen. It's like, oh, my people, I just love you. Oh, my people, just come to me. My people, my people, come to me. I just want you to come to me. Now, that's generally every prophecy I've heard. Is this really what God is saying to us as a church of America today? I don't think so. Why not? Because I don't think God is just hanging back like a wallflower hoping that we'll come to him. And you say, well, I've heard different prophecies. And I say, I have heard some prophecies that I think were, in fact, prophecies. I'm not denying that it happens. There are several times where either through premonitions or dreams, I have been told something that's going to happen that was awful, and it happened just the way I dreamed or heard it was going to happen. But it wasn't just a heaving bosom. In both cases, for me, it was death. And I was told by God beforehand what was going to happen. Okay? Okay, you all with me? So I'm not denying that God doesn't use dreams and visions and premonitions to warn us about what we're going to suffer or to encourage us about blessings he's going to give us. And so when he says here, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, the normal expression of prophecy in the church today is opening up scripture to the people in a helpful way where scripture is applied to the sins, it's applied to the fears, it's, scripture is opened up in such a way that the people of God are strengthened in the direction of holiness and faith. Okay? Now, why would it say that the 
prophecy should be done in accordance with faith. Well, obviously, in order to open up Scripture to God's people, you have to have faith. The ability to do that, the willingness to do that, has to have faith. But the other thing is, when we talk about faith, if I were to use the word faith, you would think, well, what about a confession of faith? And you would be right. If you take all of Scripture and you take it on one subject, you have Scripture's testimony for instance, on the issue of eternity and heaven and hell. And we confess in the words of the Apostles' Creed what Scripture says about the end times, right? And so this is called the faith. It is a confession of faith. What Scripture teaches is our faith. You you understand this. And so if we are to prophesy in accordance with faith, this is the reason that the first rule of scripture interpretation is what? The first rule is the analogy of faith. What is the analogy of faith? The analogy of faith is interpreting scripture by scripture. We never depart from scripture when we prophesy. We always are completely under the authority of every word of Scripture. And you can see this in Scripture itself. Look at 1 Timothy 2, where the Apostle Paul is dealing with feminism. And he says, listen, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. And then he gives the reason. He says, for Adam was created first, and then Eve. He goes on, but what is he doing? Well, he's using the analogy of faith. He is applying scripture to rebellion of women and men against men's responsibility and authority. And he uses the book of Genesis to explain this. That's why I always refer to that text as a double whammy. Because if one were to want to know how to deal with feminism today, it would be so nice if God had given us something in Scripture that would help us know how to respond. Well, what, what do you know? We have 1 Timothy 2. But 1 Timothy 2 is so complicated. You know, it uses the Greek word authentic. And you know it's very complicated what that word means. Well, the Apostle Paul says, okay, you have trouble knowing what authentane means and how it's to be applied. Try this one on. Adam was created first, then Eve. (laughs) Oh, yeah, but what do we mean by, like, first? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Double whammy, because the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul takes... Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling us what God did. Okay? Moses tells us. The Apostle Paul tells us. Double whammy, the analogy of faith. There in Scripture is the analogy of faith. Do you see this? So those who prophesy are to do it according to faith. Second, If service in his serving, well, right here we think, okay, well, this gets to be redundant, right? 
You know, at least there's a difference between what we're supposed to evaluate the use of the gift with, with prophecy, but here it's those who have the gift of service are supposed to exercise it in serving. And it seems like a tautology, right? It just seems stupid. It's like the Apostle Paul got bored and tired, right? But think about this. Somebody that has the gift of service, can they not use that for their own well-being and refuse to use it for the good of the church? Can they not use it to grow a business without growing the body of Christ? The context is the church. If you have the gift of service, you're to use it serving. In the church, one another. And then we move on and he says... Or he who teaches in his teaching. Well, again, couldn't a teacher use it all to earn good money in the public school system and never teach at church? Couldn't they use it to build their business? You know, you think of this guy, I forget his name, I think his first name is Jeff, who has made a good living by going around to public school systems and and teaching teachers how to teach, right? Right? I don't remember his last name, but he's in this community. He's built a big business, I think. So it is possible to have the gift of teaching and not to teach the church, isn't it? Now, why would you want to use the gift of teaching outside the church, but not inside the church? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Ask Stephen. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. Can you imagine a sergeant in the army who handles basic training not being an exhorter? But how many of the sergeants who handle boot camp do you think are willing to go to church and exhort at church? Have you ever noticed how men who are most gifted in the military often are the least helpful in church? Can't believe he said that. Men who are unbelievably manly in their day job are often AWOL in the church militant. I remember one man at my former church who was a dentist. And he was a deacon, I think. And I remember one day I was talking to him about a conflict that was in the board of deacons that was nasty. And I remember that man looking at me in the hallway at ECC, now CCC. And he says to me, I deal with conflict every day in my work, and I will not have it at church. And I thought to myself, I have a lot of sympathy for that. You know, I really do. I mean, do you really want to do at church what you've spent your week doing? So of course a man who has the gift of 
exhortation would be tempted to not use that gift in church. It's a tiring gift. Any of you mothers tired of exhorting your children? Oh my goodness. It's like a noose around your neck. And then they don't listen to you. They don't respect you. They don't thank you. (laughs) Mm. So now a funny story. Recently, the founding elder of this church died. He was a wonderful man named Jay Lee. Wonderful. And Jay Lee was what people with a gift of exhortation often are. He was irrepressible. He bubbled up in his sleep. He had a wonderful plan for your life when he was snoring, (laughs) you know. And um, he passed away a few weeks ago. And I visited him occasionally. And I would tell him, I'd say, Jay, he left over some doctrinal issues. But I'd say, you know, Jay, this church is your fruit. I see your fruit everywhere in this church. And it was true. Finally, he came to our most recent Christmas concert. And I knew what was going to happen. And sure enough, he just was filled with joy at the concert. He was like, it was like he died and gone to heaven. I went up to him. He was over there. I said, Jay, this is your fruit. It was so sweet. Well, remember I said Jay is irrepressible. So he had a small group when he was a younger man and he and Mike Bowl share something in common, which is they, there is not a spoonerism that they can avoid. They're just constantly saying the wrong word. You know? And it's often hilarious. And I won't tell you any of Mike's right now because some of them are for private consumption. Um, But I will tell you one of Jay's. He was talking to his small group about how everybody has their gift. And of course, Jay being an exhorter, he was exhorting everybody to find out what their gift is and to use it. And after probably an hour of haranguing everybody in the group about how they had to find what their gift was and use it, he gets to the end and he wants to emote You know, he wants to self-disclose. He wants them to know that he himself, he does this. And so he says, listen, he says, I know what my gift is. He says, my gift is extortion. (laughs) I think some of us who worked a lot with Jay over the years would agree that was his gift. So, we need to use the gift of exhortation for the church. We need to exhort one another while it's still day, okay? He who gives with liberality. Now, that's weird. All of a sudden, it gets non redundant. If you give, you're supposed to give with liberality. Now, why would somebody who has the gift of giving give with illiberality? Well, what is illiberality? 
Illiberality is with stinginess, with resentment, with tight wattishness, with scroogishness. Those are all antonyms to liberality, right? Why would somebody that God has given a lot of money to resent giving it away? Well, think about it. How did they get their money? They got their money by being a miser. By never spending it. By disciplining themselves and their families in ways that are inhumane. And then, having produced their money that way, they expect other people to to be as tight as they are. Then they say to themselves, you know something? I know why they need my money, and it's because they have not been stingy. They have not been miserly. They have not been scroogey. They have not put themselves under discipline. And so I'm not going to give my money to them liberally. I'm going to give it to them in such a way that they learn their lesson of how I earn my money. Okay, you all with me? So you might say, well, yeah, but that's not true of all rich people that have the gift of giving. That's not true of blue bloods in Boston. Because they didn't earn their money, they inherited it. And I tell you, I've worked for blue bloods in Boston. And the end result of me working for blue bloods in Boston is... I lost any desire I had ever had to be rich. Why? Oh, my goodness. You would not believe what those people put themselves through to try to hold on to their money that they've had for three or four or five or six generations. They're always running as fast as they can to stay away from the poverty train. Because, of course, they don't have the creativity and discipline that produces money. All they have is the blood that allows them to inherit it. And it keeps going down and down and down. And so, here's a funny thing. Blue bloods in Boston are liberals. But their liberality is with other people's money through the government. It's never their money. And so what God says to us through the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit is, if you have money, you're to give it away liberally. I didn't do this in the first service, but I'm going to do it here. I've wanted to write about this, but I haven't gotten around to writing on it. May I please sing a song to Jay Lee? Jay Lee gave so much money away. And it was so beautiful. He gave so much money away that his left hand didn't know what his right hand was doing. What a gift to the church. I honor Jay Lee. I'll just tell you one story. One day I was sitting with George Harris at lunch. 
And I saw he had a hearing aid in his ear. And I said to George, George, you've never worn a hearing aid. And he said, yeah, but I've needed them. And I said, George, where did you get it? He said, Jay Lee bought it for me. Thank God for Jay Lee. You know, it's probably, it's probably important to tell you that Jay Lee made a very large gift to a man that allowed him to work, to do a certain work. Well, I won't go further than that. And do you know that that man always resented Jay Lee? He resented the fact that Jay Lee's generosity had given him a job. Can you imagine that? You say, yes, I can. I resent anybody else's gift that I need. I don't like to have to depend on other people. That's the nature of our pride. We don't like to have to depend on anybody else because we think it's demeaning to us to have God having given his grace to somebody else that we don't have. We don't like that, okay? Now, one other thing. Those of you who are deacons, please stand up. Okay, now listen, you deacons. The, John Calvin has a special word for you. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about this until I was in the back before the first service and I'm reading Calvin and I'm thinking, whoa! Calvin says that the point of this is to tell you that you must not be stingy with the church's money. That you should give it away liberally. And I happen to know that you fight over this in your, in your deacons meetings. Now, I will tell you honestly, I don't know who's stingy among you. I try to stay as far away from knowledge of that as I possibly can, right? It's enough for me to keep track of the elders. I don't want to have to keep track of the deacons. But would all of you please hear John Calvin and saying, as you handle the money that God has given you to be stewards over, be liberal. Okay, you can sit down. <laughs> that was helpful, wasn't it? <laughs> Okay. He who leads with diligence. Again, this is not being, uh, what's the word? Huh? Repetitive. Yeah, it's not being repetitive. So there must be something about leadership that requires diligence. Now, who are the leaders of a church? Well, the leaders of the church are your elders. Why would you have to tell elders to be diligent? What is the work of a leader? The work of a leader is to protect you. That's the essence of the presidency. That's the essence of a governor. That's the essence of a law enforcement officer. That is the essence of a father. And that is the essence of the elders of the church. The elders are to protect you. Okay? You all with me? I know you sit there and you think, where did he come up with that? And I'll just tell you, it's always Calvin. So he talks about this. As a matter of fact, <laughs> you ready for this? On this, Calvin actually says, and we're not talking here about the leaders of civil society, 
Because at the time of Paul, they were all wicked. (laughs) Which I think is funny given COVID. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. But he says it is directed to the elders of a church. And the job of the elders of a church is to protect. Now, why would the elders of a church be lazy and slothful and not want to be diligent in the protection of the church? Because why? Yeah, it does not stop. And guess what? When you try to protect somebody, they will smash you in the teeth. You know how much law enforcement officers love going to domestic disturbances. What they always say is, when you go and try to bring priests to a home as a policeman, you're the one that goes to the hospital with a concussion. Would you tell them I'm telling the truth? Okay. And so elders have to be told to be diligent in leadership. It is a never-ending work, and it's a real pain. Now, I'm going to say something to you as a congregation at this point, which is, would you please thank them for their work, and would you please make their work easy? Because if you make it hard, it will be of no benefit to you. Oh, he's quoting scripture! (laughs) Remember Hebrews. Obey, submit to those in authority who keep watch over their souls as men that must give an account. You know, do it cheerfully. Obey, because doing so will be of benefit to you. What it says there is it will be of no benefit to you if you punish them for their work. And so find elders. Thank them. When they come to you, don't punish them for doing it. Now, I know that's ridiculous because you will. And so would you please just remember what I said so that the next morning when you wake up and you have this nagging sense of guilt, you remember, oh yeah, I punished an elder. And then go back to them and say, hey, I've had some time to cool down and I'm sorry. You know? Are you all with me? Okay, okay, one more. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You know what Calvin says on this point? Calvin says that people that show mercy tend to be really sort of sourpusses about it. Now that's weird, isn't it? But you know something? I have noticed it in this church. What, what on earth would cause people with the gift of mercy to be sourpusses about showing it? Well, what they think to themselves is that nobody ever appreciates their gift. They think that everybody they show mercy to just takes it for granted. They're just like the rich man. People that show mercy want to make people pay for their mercy, just like rich people want people to pay them for their money. You know? And so Calvin says, but you know what? It's a real pain when somebody with a gift of mercy is a sourpuss about it. And he says the reason is that the person they're showing mercy to just resents them. Isn't that weird? And so if you have the gift of mercy, 
Give it what? Cheerfully. Give it cheerfully. Be liberal with giving away money. Be cheerful with giving away mercy. You have really helped me today. We have a pastor in our midst who has been very helpful to me preaching. You know, it's often the case that one or two people in a church in a particular sermon, as you watch them, as you preach, they'll just strengthen you. And thank you for doing that today. So that's the end. Can we all listen to the Apostle Paul? And can we all allow other people to minister to us in the things that we don't have? And can we take the things that we do have and give them without creating a cult of ourselves? And again, I'm going to remind you, this is what it's going to require for us to be at peace as I leave. The only way we're going to be at peace is if we're forgetful about Tim Bailey and we honor the next man and we never pit the two against each other. Never. Never. We don't go there. Okay? What a beautiful thing to live in love with one another. What a beautiful thing. It's so beautiful. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for being so tender and patient with us and giving us gifts we don't deserve corporately and individually. Father, we thank you for the rich men that give to us liberally. We thank you for the merciful who show mercy cheerfully. We thank you for our diligent elders. Father, we thank you for all the gifts that we have to luxuriate in as a church. Father, we pray for our future that you will protect it from division. We pray, Father, that we will be the joyful recipients of the gifts that our next pastor has to give us. We pray, Father, that I will decrease, that he might increase. And we thank you for the, for the beloved prophet, John the Baptist, who took this position under you. All glory to you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm sorry, but let me do one other thing. As I was preparing to preach, I looked up the words of the final stanza of a hymn. And the hymn is, the sands of time are sinking. And the final verse is, the bride eyes not her garment. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land.